Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. This morning, as I mentioned earlier, we come to the conclusion of Romans chapter 9. And this entire book written by the Apostle Paul focuses on this doctrine that pertains to the gospel. And I know that every single week I spend some time to review, but it's important for us to continue to remind ourselves of the purpose of this book. And we know that the word gospel means good news. It's the only solution for man's ultimate problem. The only way a person, a society, or a nation can be restored is through the power of the gospel. And just like most books, Romans is divided up into several different sections. You've got the first section, which speaks about man's problem of sin and and God's judgment upon that. Really, the whole thing can be summed up in Romans chapter 11, as it points out that there is no one that seeks after God because there's no one that's righteous. In this first section of Romans, Paul displays man's need for the gospel because of man's wickedness. And then as you move into the second section of Romans, he answers the solution to man's problem by providing the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because of the gospel. The second section can be summed up in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, when Paul says that all men will receive the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. All men have fallen short of the glory of God because of their sin, but man is justified through the gift of grace, which is only found in Jesus Christ. This is salvation. And then you move into the third section of Romans, which speaks about how a Christian ought to act after they receive Christ. It's the sanctification process. Sanctification is really the subject line in Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. Now, for the past, I don't know, three or four weeks, like three weeks, uh, we've been focusing on Romans chapter 9. And what we see is an interesting uh, situation that occurs between Paul's writing. Uh, Normally, you would read just the the overall flow of the theological rhetoric of Paul. You would just assume that he would go from Romans chapter 8 to Romans chapter 12. If you were to read the end of Romans chapter 8 into the first part of Romans chapter 12, you would see no missing gaps there. But the Apostle Paul pauses, and in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's really this parenthetical phrase that he speaks of really God's relationship to Israel. See, what you have going on at this particular time period is a lot of Jews rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so they were questioning what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 about how nothing, and no height, nor depth, no Uh, No creature here on earth can ever separate us from the love of God. And so what they're looking at is what Paul just said in society that the Jews really weren't followers of Christ. And so therefore, that can't be consistent with what God is is really telling us about our love and his love for us staying consistent, staying together. And so the question was, if you say that God is so powerful and he's so so, uh, uh, completely in control, he's sovereign then why is there a disconnect and why does God seem like he's foregoing the promises that he made to his chosen people in the Old Testament because of the amount of Jews that rejected? And so what Paul does in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is he takes the time to be able to answer these questions. And in so doing, Paul discusses the past history of Israel in chapter 9, which is what we've been discussing. He discusses the present situation of Israel in chapter 10, and he discusses the future of Israel in chapter 11. In chapter 9, Paul discovers or or discusses really uh, his sovereign election regarding his chosen people. In this chapter, we gain just a small glimpse of the character and the nature of God and his dealings with Israel. And as we've expressed before, we have to be clear in saying that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are specifically speaking to Israel, regarding Israel. But yet in those passages, we can see truths of how God deals with us through this topic of sovereign election. So far, we discovered that within this sovereign election, we see that God is faithful to his call. 
We see in the beginning parts of Romans chapter 9 that even when Abraham and Sarah tried to take matters into their own hands, and Sarah said to Abraham, sleep with my handmaiden so that you can have a child because God obviously is not fulfilling his promise like he said he would. It was just not in that particular timing of them. We see that even though they try to take matters in their own hands, God still followed through with his plan. He still followed through, which shows that he is faithful. And he also shows that he's faithful by choosing um, Jacob instead of Esau to continue the nation of Israel. It's another testament to God's faithfulness. We discussed that God is righteous in his sovereign election. We see the example between Moses and Pharaoh and how you have two individuals who grew up in a very similar way, but yet God chose Moses to fulfill his noble purposes, and yet he chose Pharaoh to be a fitted vessel for destruction. We see that God is righteous in that. Well, how so? Well, first off, God doesn't have to choose anyone for his grace, to receive his grace. But yet, in so doing, we see that God is righteous because everything that God is, does is in accordance to his overall divine sovereign plan. Last week, we discussed the justice of God. And we talked about how just because we don't understand the reason as to why God does things that he does, doesn't give us the right to question God. Now, that statement in and of itself doesn't seem, it seems like a cop-out. We're just supposed to accept everything that God does? Well, yes, ultimately, yes. And the example that Paul gives here is, is the relationship between a potter and the clay. The potter creates the clay, but the clay, clay has no, question, no right to question the potter as to why he created the clay that way, created the pot to be that way. The creator has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation, and the same thing goes with God. God is just in everything that he does, and therefore we cannot make conclusions based upon what we seem to be fair, because first off, God operates over the span of eternity. Just because we don't see what's going on right now doesn't mean that we have the right to make that conclusion. God is operating over the time span of eternity, and we see over time and time again that just because it seems as if a majority of the Jews rejected Christ, that does not mean that God is, is, is completely at fault with that. Matter of fact, he's been predicting that in the Old Testament. But yet God has been divinely, sovereignly aligning things up to work according to his plan. So if you have your Bibles, if you've not done so, if you could take with me to Romans chapter 9 this morning, we're going to look at the final four verses of this particular chapter. And what Paul does is he explains to the, re uh, the, to the readers the reason why the Jews have rejected the faith. They did not have genuine faith. And on the flip side of what he does is he explains why the Gentiles do have genuine faith. And I've said this before. It's so important to understand this context. The Jews hated the Gentiles. You think racism is bad today, and it is? It was nothing compared to the relationship between the Jews and everybody else. They thought that the Gentiles, anybody that was not a Jew, was a dog. They were not educated enough. They were not smart enough. They could never be holy because they were nothing more than unrighteous, unholy dogs. And what we're going to see here, as Paul explains today, is that it's actually the Jews that did not have holiness, but yet... The Gentiles did. And so if you could stand with me out of the respect of God's word, we're going to look at these final four verses here. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 down to verse 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, had not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in sigh on a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. 
Within these final four verses, what we see here this morning is this fourth characteristic of God that is displayed through His sovereign election, and that is His grace. It's by God's grace that we have redemption. It's by God's grace that we are used for His kingdom purposes. And it's by God's grace that we can spend forever and eternity with Him. The title of the message this morning is God's Sovereign Election Part 4, God's Grace. Thank you. You may be seated. When we speak of salvation, and my prayer is that we would never go through a preaching time where I have not clearly explained what the gospel is, but when we think about salvation, we have to think about it this way. We have to be sure to emphasize that genuine salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. God's grace is a crucial element when it comes to genuine salvation. Grace is the act of giving something that we do not deserve. Somebody explains it this way. God's grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. Salvation being given to man merely based upon the grace of God is where many people fail when it comes to genuine salvation. There are many that believe that in Christ... They have faith and and that He's paid the penalty for them. There are many that believe that, but few accept the fact that salvation is a free gift or offered by the grace of God. Being the human beings that we are, we are used to working for everything. We're used to working for our job. We're used to qualifying for a position. And some of you have received higher positions here recently. In order to receive that, you have to turn in your resume, right? And you had to interview and you had to qualify for that position. That's what's been ingrained in us as human beings. We are used to qualifying for things. And so when it comes to salvation, as, as far as us not being able to do anything to receive it, we just have to receive it. We falter at that. It's a hard time accepting the fact that everything that needed to be done in order to restore our relationship with God was already done for us through Jesus Christ. And the only reason why we have access to this gift is because of the grace of God. That is the only reason why we have access to Jesus Christ. This is where the Jews struggled. The Jews wanted to do something to earn salvation, but Paul says, you can't qualify. You don't qualify. You cannot work for salvation. It's only by the grace of God that we have eternal life. And so in order to clarify this point, what Paul does is he explains to the readers the difference between the faith of the Gentiles and the faith of Jews. Paul closes out chapter 9 through specific pointed facts within these verses. Paul concludes his lesson on God's divine choice by reminding his readers that although God chooses some to receive His mercy, those vessels fitted for destruction do not receive God's judgment because of something that God has done to them. People receive the judgment of God because of their unwillingness to believe the gospel and accept the grace of God. Again, we see this tension between man's free will and the responsibility of man and the responsibility or the sovereign choice of God. And I've explained this before you, uh, to you before, I don't know what that looks like. I can't explain to you what the tension is between man's free will and God's sovereignty because I believe that that is something we will not fully grasp until we get to heaven. But the Bible makes two things clear. That man must repent of their sins and believe in Christ, but also at the same time, God does know who's going to get saved. This is a sovereign, divine choice here. But in our passage this morning, God, or Paul, gives us three descriptions of our faith in relationship to God's grace. The first thing that we see here is this. God's grace is dependent upon God's will, not a person's qualifications. Praise God for that. God's grace is dependent upon God's will, not a person's qualifications. In verses 30 through 31, we gain just a small glimpse between man's responsibility and God's sovereign will. 
While on the one hand, it is true that God will sovereignly choose mankind to accomplish His divine plan, it is also true that man has the responsibility to come to God in faith. But here is one of the many wonderful aspects about God's grace. It is not dependent upon our qualifications. Paul says in verse 30, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. Now, I want you to think about it for just a moment if you were a Jewish person reading that. As I just mentioned to you earlier, the Jews hated the Gentiles because of multiple different things. One of them being the fact that Gentiles were not God's chosen people. The law was not given to the Gentiles. It was given to the Jews. And so the Jews realized the Gentiles, man, they're, they're nothing. They could never achieve the type of holiness that we have in and of ourselves. And the fact that Paul says and gets them to think, how do you justify the fact that the Gentiles, which did not seek after righteousness, have righteousness, and yet you don't? How do you explain that? And he continues on by really pointing out that God's grace outweighs man's past deeds by reminding the Jews of the pursuit of the Gentiles. The Gentiles did not have the law. They did not pursue righteousness. They didn't. If you were to flip back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, that was a fun one when we discussed about the pagan immorality of people. It was talking about the Gentiles. The pagan immoral Gentiles talking about how they've rejected God and, and just describing the gross immorality that they had. It's an obvious difference between Paul's description of the religious and outwardly moral Jews in Romans chapter 2, verse 1 till chapter 3, verse 8. Big difference there. But in God's eyes, both of them were equal in the fact that if you did not have Christ in your heart, you both were sinners. No matter how conformed to the religious lifestyle you were versus no matter how completely pagan and, and sinful you are. In God's eyes, they're both in need of a Savior. Paul compares the faith of the Gentiles to the absence of saving faith within the Jews in verse 31. He says, Israel which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Paul tells the readers that the Jews failed to attain the very thing they pursued, and that was righteousness. The strict keeping of the law did nothing for their redemption. The legalism that they pursued and then they held to did nothing for their redemption. In God's eyes, they were just as guilty as those that did not pursue righteousness in the least bit. Understanding the biblical terms here to, is really key to understanding this concept. For example, we've talked about this before. The word redemption means to buy back. It means to buy back. When created in perfection, we had an unsevered relationship with God. When Adam and Eve were created, they had no sin. Actually, Cleo and I were just talking about this the other day. Adam and Eve were created in absolute perfection. But when Adam and Eve chose to sin, their relationship was severed. No longer were they owned by God. Our sinlessness afforded us the opportunity to be owned by Satan. When Adam and Eve fell and chose to sin, mankind was no longer underneath the ownership of God, but underneath the ownership of the flesh. Our sin made us slaves to our flesh. But here's the beautiful part about all of this. When God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, His precious blood was the only payment that was worthy enough to buy back sinful man. Jesus' blood was the only one that was worthy enough to buy back sinful man. So when a person tries to work to achieve their salvation, they fail because the price of their salvation is far more expensive than what man can do on his own effort. Not 
Not only does the effort to receive salvation by works prove futile, it cheapens the actual price that was paid on our behalf. I've given this illustration before, but I think it's one of the most beautiful illustrations of what we can comprehend when it comes to the redemption aspect. Let's say that Kaysen uh, was out, uh, he's sitting right there today, Kaysen was out there and he was working on a little boat. And so he's creating his boat and he's, he's becoming adventurous with that. And Kaylee and Avery are over there helping him create the boat. And so they're all really excited. And so they go over there to Jordan Lake and they uh, decide to float that boat onto Jordan Lake. And that boat works a little too well for them. It floats, they got the sail up, and then this big wind comes and captures that boat and it sails away. Now, even though Kaylee and Avery are extremely good swimmers, it's too far away for them to be able to get. And so Kaysen breaks down, as many of you have probably seen before, starts crying. It's the end of the world. My boat is gone. And so mom and dad comfort them. That boat that they made now is gone. It's lost at the lake, not at sea. And so a few weeks go by, and we're having church here at the pit. And Kaysen's walking down the sidewalk, and he looks in one of the stores there, and there's a boat that looks exactly like the one that him, Kaylee, and Avery created. And so he, he grabs that, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. He goes inside and he, he tells the, uh, the store owner there, that's my boat, that's my boat, that's my boat. The store owner says, no, it's not your boat, I own it. It's my boat. Kaysen looks underneath the boat and he sees that there's their names signed on the bottom of that boat, but he knows he doesn't own it. Those names have been kind of erased a little bit. There's no longer an ownership on Kaysen's behalf. And so the only way in order to buy that boat back is he comes to daddy and he asks for money. And that boat cost $500. And it talks about the craftsmanship of all these kids here. And so I take out the $500 and I hand it to the store owner. And guess what? I bought that boat back. That's redemption. So when it comes to a spiritual aspect, every single person was born in sin. We are not owned by God. We are owned by the flesh. We are owned by the principalities. We are owned by the, the, uh, the king of this world, so to speak. But when Jesus Christ came and he shed his blood, our works cannot buy us back. It's not good enough. That currency will not be accepted. Us going to church, somebody doing something on our behalf, our grandparents being saved, none of that is efficient enough for us to be able to receive salvation. The only thing that is sufficient enough for us to receive salvation is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only currency that is good enough, that is worthy enough, and that is sufficient in order to buy us back. That is redemption. The point that Paul is making in all of this is that the Jews sought for righteousness, but they could not find it. The Gentiles were not searching for righteousness, but they found it. The reason why the Jews did not find righteousness is because they tried to earn righteousness on their own merit. Their currency of works was not acceptable. It was not good enough. The Gentiles who had nothing to offer, who were completely, completely sinless, knew they weren't good enough. The reason why they became righteous is because they accepted the only currency that was good enough, and that was the blood of Jesus Christ. And sometimes when we see people in this life, it's those that are completely lost in their sin are the ones that are oftentimes the easiest to win for Christ because they know they have nothing to offer. So you're telling me that my relationship with God can be restored if I just accept what Jesus has done for you? Yes. Well, sign, sign me up. I can't give him any money. I have no money. I certainly can't give him any works because I'm not good enough. And that was the case with 
the Gentiles and the Jews. Jonathan Edwards states that the redeemed are dependent of God for all. All that we have, wisdom, the pardon of sin, deliverance, acceptance in God's favor, grace, holiness, true comfort, and happiness, eternal life and glory, we have from God by a mediator, and this mediator is God. God not only gives us the mediator and accepts his mediation and of his power and grace bestows the things purchased by the mediator, he is the mediator. Our blessings are what we have by purchase, and the purchase is made of God. The blessings are purchased of Him, and not only so, but God is the purchaser. Yes, God is both the purchaser and the price for Christ, who is God, purchased by these blessings by offering Himself as the price of our salvation. So here's the bottom line. God's grace is dependent upon God's will. And we know that God's will and His desire is that all men be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. God's grace is the only means by which mankind receives righteousness. And I've talked to people multiple times, and I said, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God, what would you say in order to tell God that you should be led into heaven? And the response I'm often given is, well, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to do this, and I've tried to do that, and i tried to do this. And I can tell you right now, based upon the Word of God, those Answers are not good enough because you're trying to enter into the gates of heaven with the wrong currency. The answer is, well, it's because your son died on the cross for me and I accepted that as my own. That is the only way that we can get into heaven. God's grace is dependent upon God's will, not a person's qualification. Number two, to pursue God's grace through works is to stumble over the Messiah. To pursue God's grace through works is to stumble over the Messiah. Look at verse 32. Here, Paul gives the reason as to why the Jews failed in their efforts to earn God's righteousness. Paul says, Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. The Jews were too busy focused on keeping the law that they failed to see the big picture. In the Old Testament, we've talked about this multiple times throughout this book of Romans. It shows us that the law was there to show mankind's complete sinfulness. This is what Paul discusses in Romans chapter 7. In verses 7 and 8 of that chapter specifically, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet, but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. The purpose of the law was not to make mankind righteous. The purpose of the law was to show mankind the impossibility that he had in order to become righteous on his own effort. It was to show mankind just how completely sinful he was. The purpose of the entire law was to point mankind's need for an ultimate Savior, enter in Jesus Christ. That is the only solution to righteousness. But the Jews missed the entire point. It's keeping on the law. It's doing this and doing this and doing this. And they stumbled over the Messiah. A commentator explains it this way in verse 32. He says, He does not suggest we notice that his fellow Jews could not keep the law. The ability to keep the law everywhere is assumed by this letter. The difficulty, rather, is that such legal observance is not the heart of a relationship with the living God. To pursue a righteous law, therefore, would mean to observe the law as an expression of faith. To pursue the law as though it were simply a matter of accomplishment, a performance of works, means for Paul to miss the essential meaning of law as a response in faith to the living God. So why do we why do we 
seek to serve God? Why do we seek to not sin? It's not because we're trying to gain a better standing with God. It's because we've been saved by the blood of Christ. And so therefore, out of response of a love that we have for God, for what he has done for us, we want to please him. Not because we think that if we don't please him, he's going to punish us in in just a, a severe way or love us less. That's legalism. Doing things in order for, to gain better favor with God is legalism. Again, we can't do anything in order to gain a better favor with God. Everything that needed to be done in order for that to happen was already done through Jesus Christ. So we serve Him. We come to church because we hunger after knowing the knowledge of our Savior and wanting to please Him. Since the purpose of the law was to point mankind for the need of the Savior, the Messiah that was meant to be a stepping stone to God, and I mean that in an irreverent way, actually became a stumbling stone. This is why Paul says, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. What does Paul mean by a stumbling stone? In verse 33, Paul quotes Isaiah. He says, as it is written, behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Sion, some of your versions may say that, is, is another name or reference to Jerusalem. Long before the coming of the Messiah, the Old Testament prophets predicted that Israel would reject her Messiah. Again, this prediction proving that only a remnant of Israel would be saved while a majority would reject the Messiah. We talked about that several weeks ago. There's only going to be a small remnant. In other words, a small portion of Israel that will actually accept the Messiah. So what was going on here wasn't a proof that God wasn't in control. It was actually a direct fulfillment of the prophecy in which was predicted in the Old Testament. When Peter and Isaiah referred to Jesus as a stumbling stone, this is in reference, sorry, Paul, not Peter. This is in reference to the misinterpretation of those that reject the Messiah. Jesus is God's stone of salvation. Psalm chapter 118, verse 22 states, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. God gave Christ to be the foundation stone for all. This is what it means when the psalmist refers to Christ as the chief cornerstone. But since the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah, instead of Jesus being their foundational stone, he became their stumbling stone. Salvation was made possible for the Jews by the grace of God as a result of the rejection of the Jews. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid but rather through their fall, salvation come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. We see a shift in the book of Acts where God shifts His focus from the nation of Israel, from His chosen people to the Gentiles. We don't hold to replacement theology here. We just look at Scripture as basically an opportunity where God sets Israel aside for a time being and focuses His attention upon us. Because every single person in here is a Gentile. A commentator puts it this way. The Jew wanted a militant Messiah. The Jew wanted a lion. God sent a lamb. The Jew wanted a throne. God gave a cross. The one whom the law and the prophets all spoke, the Jew stumbled over him. So, so far what we've discovered when it comes to God's grace is that God's grace is dependent upon God's will. Therefore, the receiving of God's righteousness is not dependent upon past works, but upon the acceptance of God's grace through faith. We see that those that try and pursue the grace of God through works stumble over the Messiah. They trip over the only solution to their sins, which leads us to our final point this morning. Number three, to receive God's grace is to have faith in the finished work of Christ. Look down at verse 33. The end part of it. Paul says, And whosoever believeth on him shall what? Not be ashamed. 
There is so much that could be said about this phrase. Salvation, we understand, requires humility. It's literally admitting that you are not good enough to receive righteousness or to be righteous. It's to have faith that only Christ can restore your relationship with God. The Jews placed their faith in works in order to achieve righteousness. They were too prideful to trust in the finished work of Christ. And the question that we have here this morning is, are we too prideful to trust in the finished work of Christ? Because you think about it. If we say, no, 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 I need to do this, this, and this in order to receive righteousness, that's a level of pride. Because we believe that we're actually good enough to receive God's righteousness. That defeats what grace is. Grace is giving us something we do not deserve. And so the question here this morning is, are we too prideful to trust in the finished work of Christ? Now, let's say that we are saved. Perhaps we are saved, and I'm going to assume that you are. I would pray that we are. How are we doing on those last four words of that chapter? Are we ashamed to live out our faith? Are we ashamed to talk about Jesus? And of course not. Of course we aren't. We're Christians. We're all here in a safe zone here. We can talk about Jesus all day long in this church. But let me pose some questions here and some scenarios, and I want you to determine if this would be true in your own heart. Am I ashamed to read the Bible on the bus? Am I ashamed to place my Bible on my desk at work? Am I ashamed to pray with a brother or sister in public? Am I ashamed to speak out on issues that matter to Jesus? Am I ashamed to ever mention Jesus in a post or social media? Am I ashamed to thank God when I announce the birth of my child? Am I ashamed to select Christian and religious views on my Facebook profile? Am I ashamed to mention Jesus when I am with people who aren't Christian? Am I ashamed to thank God for my meal when people who aren't Christians are present? Am I ashamed to communicate my disapproval when a colleague or a friend blasphemes the name of Jesus? That's a hard one. Am I ashamed to display my faith in a way that would be visible to guests when they enter my home? Am I ashamed to explain that the reason for my goodness, not swearing, being honest at work, etc., I'm not talking about perfection, is not because I am nice, but because I love Jesus? Am I ashamed to meet with other Christians in public gatherings outside of church, perhaps at a Christian group at a university? I know we have some students that are involved in one. Or at lunchtime, or at prayer meeting at work. I'm not saying that all of those things or any of those things equate Christianity because then that would defeat everything we've been talking about. It would be good works. But my question here this morning is, how is your level of boldness for Christ in the people that you're around? Everything is covered by love. We understand that. You don't go around and say, you're a dirty, rotten sinner going to hell. Like That's probably not the best way to start off in the witnessing opportunity. But the question would be, is, are you, do people know you're Christians? Somebody once said this, and, and it's always stuck by me, if you were on trial for your Christianity, would there be enough evidence to convict you that you would be found guilty? As we conclude this morning, as we wrap up in chapter 9 this morning, the question would be is, what have we learned so far regarding this election of God? Well, within this context, Paul is talking about the nation of Israel. We understand that. Paul answers the question regarding the nations rejecting the Messiah. To many onlookers, it appears that God has failed. And maybe you've been there in your life. It appears that God has failed. But in reality, the rejection of the Jews perfectly revealed the sovereign plan of God. God said from the very beginning 
that only a small remnant or a portion of Israel would indeed become his people. God said that from the very beginning, the Gentiles, as we looked at last week, would eventually become part of the church. Because Israel rejected God, not only was this a direct fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, it was evidence of God's grace to the Gentiles. The Jews' rejection of the Messiah opened the door for the Gentiles to receive God's grace. So let's bring this sovereign election to home, uh, for, at home for us this morning. It is very clear that all throughout chapter 9, God sovereignly chooses whom He wills in order to accomplish His plan. It is also true that man's response does not thwart the plan of God. God's plan was already established from the very beginning of time. But when it comes to in each individual's response to salvation, it is not a question of whether or not that individual is among God's elect because we don't know that answer. The answer to this question is a mystery that a God only knows. Here's the facts. God offers salvation to all and those that accept His salvation given by grace through faith will be saved. Those that receive Christ are God's elect, but one can only become part of God's elect by receiving salvation through faith, nothing else. It's not faith plus this. It is faith plus nothing. That's grace. As I mentioned at the start of this series, no one will deny the fact that there is a mystery between man's human responsibility and God's sovereign choice. Matter of fact, a commentator puts it this way. The fact that we cannot fully understand how they work together does not, does not deny the fact that they do. When somebody asked the great theologian Charles Spurgeon to reconcile the divine sovereignty and human responsibility, Charles Spurgeon replied, I cannot try to reconcile friends. So when it comes to the great mystery of God's sovereign election, we gain great comfort in the fact that God is in complete control. We rejoice that as Christians, we are indeed part of God's elect. Praise God for that. But we don't allow the sovereign election of God to be an excuse for our lack of prayer for the salvation of the work and for the advancement of God's kingdom. And there's people in here that I talk to that are on fire for God. Uh, many of you are. But I know one in particular, he prays that the kingdom of God would be done and he shares the gospel of everyone. We leave the working up to God, the sovereign working up to God, the sovereign election up to God, but we're commanded to share the gospel. Are we ashamed at the name of Jesus Christ? We faithfully serve God until God calls us home. We rejoice when people make decisions for Christ, and that is huge for us. The main purpose of Romans 9 is clear. Israel's rejection of the Messiah does not deny the faithfulness of God. God is still on the throne. He is still righteous. He is still faithful. He is still just, and He is certainly gracious. Our God can be depended upon to keep His promises. And so when God says that whosoever called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, guess what? They will be by God's grace.